Welcome to the podcast, where we clear up common misconceptions in biology and evolution. And learn that all the answers to evolution's mysteries are simple in the way that everything is astoundingly complicated. Welcome to Darwin's Black Book. Welcome back to another episode. My name is Tom Land, a zoologist and professional researcher. And I'm Rebecca White. I'm a PhD student in evolution and genetics at the University of Exeter. So, post-biographical episode. Normally we have quite a long one, for whatever reason, and this time it's no different. We have another long one. Becca, what are we talking about today? Okay, first of all, long in a good way, because Absolutely. this topic is fantastic. We're looking at de-extinction, and we found that while reading up on this um, and asking people about it, it fit very nicely into two sections, reviving the prehistoric, um, of course, everybody thinks Jurassic Park, and then conservation and research. So what's actually been doing now, and why are people saying this is a good thing to do? So while we were first coming up with this, I asked a couple of people, if you were to bring back anything that's extinct, what would you bring back? Um, and the first place I asked this was at a gaming stream um, by Sky Palace. And Sky Palace herself said she would bring back the dodo because they captured her heart in Doctor Who. I mean, it's good a reason as any, I suppose. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if it inspires you to love dodos more, then go for it. Uh, someone else on the stream, uh, White Life Ish, said the Megalodon to justify... Um, their lack of swimming skills themselves. Right, I have opinion. I have opinions about bringing back the megalodon, which I shall make very, very apparent uh, <laughs> later. <clears throat> I also asked uh, my mum, and she wanted to bring back the saber-toothed cats, the smilodon. I don't know why. She loves cats. I think that's the reason. Um, it's a good choice, to be fair. <laughs> and then on a Facebook community, Harvey Kagakusha. It's Japanese for scientist. Oh, for real? Yeah, for real. Oh, cool. Um, well, Harvey would choose the giant armadillo. Um, and to be clear, the super giant armadillo, um, the car-sized one, the ordinary one, still hangs out in Argentina and Paraguay. Thanks for that clarification, Harvey. Um, uh, also from Charles Darwin University in Australia, Brenton von Takash uh, would bring back the gastric brooding frogs because they're really cool. And apparently um, the Lazarus Project have been working on, on do actually doing this, but they haven't had much success so far. Um, and my friend Jenny says also the dodo because um, these got mentioned a lot in primary school about something that went extinct and she just wants to see what the fuss is about. <laughs> And to be honest, I'm a fan of that because it is just a giant pigeon. Giant friendly bird. <laughs> a giant friendly pigeon, and I do love a pigeon. So, yeah, we're good with that. So, yes, Becca, when we're talking about de-extinction, I think the best place to start is, well, talking about extinction. Yeah, so what actually is extinction? Um, the definition is, it's a species that has no living members, it's no longer in existence. That's what it comes down to. But there are other types of extinction. Um, such as extinct in the wild, where we still have a few individuals or populations in captivity, but they no longer live in the environment that they first um, evolved into. You also have the idea of functional extinction. Uh, this is the extinction of a species that either disappears from the fossil record or there aren't any historical reports of it or anything, or something that's more relevant, um, the reduced population no longer plays a significant role in ecosystem function or that population is no longer viable. So there are individuals around, but they're not really going to go much further. They're probably going to be fully extinct soon. There isn't enough, enough of them to actually be viable. Yes, the population is literally too small. It, it, genetic bottleneck, the too small number of individuals, even if they bred all of them, the gene pool is far too small to actually produce anything that would exist for very long. Yeah, and some examples of this, um, northern white rhinoceros, ivory-billed woodpecker, Christmas island shrew, um, the Yangtze giant soft-shell turtle, south china tiger, Borneo rhinoceros, and so many more. You could just go on and on and on, and it's really depressing, actually, looking at how long that list is. Yeah, and most of the examples I mentioned are most of them are mammals, but it definitely doesn't just apply to mammals. They're just the ones people seem to want to talk about. <laughs> Actually, a good example for this one would be the thylacine episode that we did rather recently. The There were last two thylacine 
individuals, the last two of them, were both reported to have been female. And that is functionally extinct. Mm. They're still there, but they're both female. They, you can't do anything with that. Yeah, that's a good example, actually. Um, so what, what is de-extinction? So this is the process of generating an organism that either resembles or is an extinct species. Jurassic Park! Woo! <laughs> yes, yeah, so that's one example of why that's not always a good idea. Which I will be speaking about just a little bit later. So, uh, yes. We have to talk about Jurassic Park, really, we, don't we? We do have to, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there are several ways to carry out this process of de-extinction. So it's also called resurrection biology or species revivalism. Um, so the most kind of, I'd say, direct method would be cloning when you've got the genome of the animal. Um, it's the, the most kind of widely proposed method, although genome editing and selective breeding have also been considered. So this is using animals that are still extant, which is not extinct, um, to be able to try and resemble something that is extinct. And I think over the course of the next episode, uh, two episodes, we're going to really get into those methods. I certainly talk about them a lot. I know you I could talk about them as well and all the good bits why they actually might be a good idea and also why they won't be <laughs> so there, there is a really really quite interesting complex ethical issue in there yes especially as cloning is the only method that can actually give you an animal with the same genetic identity um, but cloning itself has a lot of um, issues in terms of um, terms of technology but also ethically and we'll definitely get onto that too it's gonna be great it's really a happy topic right there. <laughs> so yeah, I'll be talking primarily about, uh, well, so I'll be taking the first bit, kind of talking about the deep-seated desire to bring back prehistoric animals, to see what they look like, to prod them, to actually see them in the flesh, and the science that would go into that, the really detailed, intricate biology that's being done to see how feasible it is, which is really, really quite interesting. And then also, yeah, the benefits and, and negatives of doing that. And then I'm going to be talking about some really modern extinctions, why they went extinct, and potential de-extinctions that might actually be happening, like, within the next decade. So exciting. And Yeah, and maybe the ethics of that and the kind of conservation benefits that can offer. Perfect. Cool. Right. Let's talk about de-extinction. Let's do it. So as Becca was chatting about just a second ago, talking about de-extinction, first get your head around the extinction bit of it. Uh, and I think the biggest thing to understand is 99.9% .9 of all species that have ever lived on Earth are now extinct. That's a lot of animals and organisms that did exist that just aren't around anymore. A huge amount. Yeah, it is. It's a huge amount, considering the diversity we've got today and looking back at a literally eons worth of animals that have gone extinct just let that sink in and to understand the time scale i think that we're going to be talking about and the animals which have lived across the history there's a really snazzy way of trying to make that relative and i found an excellent analogy in the book the missing links the past and future of britain's lost mammals by ross barnett and i have unashamedly stolen the introduction <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's a really, really interesting way just to, just to get your head around the timescales and the animals that we're dealing with. So, wherever you're listening to this, unless you're on a bus, because this is going to be really, really weird, stick your hands out either side of you in a kind of T-shaped position. I'm doing it. Becca, do it. I'm sorry, I'm Becca, doing it, I'm doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one's watching. I'm not judging you. It's great. <laughs> so... Imagine the distance from your left fingertip to your right fingertip is the history of all complex life on Earth, starting with the first multicellular animal about 580 million years ago at your left fingertip. Got it. Cool. The first mass extinction that ever occurred on Earth takes place at your left elbow. Got it. That is 444 million years ago. 90% of all marine species died out. Whoa. Okay, at my elbow. At your left elbow. So, after that, life continued. The second mass extinction took place by your left shoulder 376 million years ago. That is, at the end of the Devonian, three quarters of all species on Earth disappeared entirely. Okay. But life continued. Third mass extinction occurs at your right shoulder 250 million years ago. I can see you doing a weird yoga thing. <laughs> I'm tapping where you're saying. 
Is anyone else's arms really hurting now? <laughs> Sorry. So, 250 million years ago, your right shoulder, that is called the Great Dying. Only four species for every 100 made it through this period. Wow, what a shoulder. Trilobites scraped through the second one, but they ended at your right shoulder here. That was That's the end of the trilobites. But mm. life continued. The fourth mass extinction at your right elbow... 200 million years ago. This time, only a meagre half of all species went, so it's kind of a small one. But <laughs> only you know, half of everything. Only half of everything. But guessing life went on. The fifth mass extinction, the most famous by far, 66 million years ago, is between the Cretaceous and the Paleogene on a Tuesday afternoon, and an asteroid came down. Uh, well, an asteroid the size of Manhattan landed in modern-day Mexico and wiped out the dinosaurs and the pterosaurs and the ichthyosaurs. Much global warming happened, and it was bad. Where's this? At my wrist? That's at your wrist. My wrist, okay. But life continued. The sixth extinction starts where the nail on your right middle fingertip began growing this morning. (laughs) That's approximately a few micrometers, and those few micrometers represent 50,000 years, and in this, the mammoth, the mower... The dodo, the diprotodont, the pamphotheater, the passenger pigeon and the toxodonts are all made extinct. From where your fingernails started growing this morning. I'm going to need my microscope. <laughs> also, how are you fitting all of those animals on that tiny little, you know, mm-hmm. terrible joke. Um, <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> but I just wanted to put into perspective the timescales that we're talking about and the fact that mass extinctions happen a lot. There's been quite a lot of them. And every single time, life has come through. So I don't want extinction to be a kind of a shocking thing or a horror kind of... Just part of the process. Just part of the process of life on Earth. Can I put my arms down now, please? Yes, you can. Thank you. (laughs) You may all put your arms down and... (laughs) Yes. And with that, de-extinction of prehistoric organisms. Things that have been eliminated by one mass extinction or another, even right up to the sixth one of humans. So, I'm going to talk about the woolly mammoth and Jurassic Park. I think these are the ones that you would think about without fail, talking about trying to bring something back from prehistory. And I really wanted to get into the science behind both, actually, and understand why people are obsessed with trying to bring back dinosaurs. (laughs) And then I will explain why this is a terrible idea. But first of all, let's look into everyone's favourite Ice Age animal. The woolly mammoth. So the this is the most recent of any of the animals I'll be talking about. Mammothus primigenius. It was extinct in the UK about 14,000 years ago, and it was extinct world over about 4,000 years ago, which is about 2000 BC. And putting this in perspective, the ancient Egyptians had been rocking around for nearly a millennium and a half at this point, and the great pyramids of Giza, the really big famous ones, were already 500 years old by the time the mammoths went extinct. Just putting that in perspective. But these things, where they were, genuinely, they were behemoths. They, males were three and a half metres at the shoulder and six tonnes. The females were two and a half to three metres at the shoulder and four tonnes. A newborn weighed nearly 100 Whoa. kilos. That's like elite, about double my weight. That's large. It For is, a baby. It's very large. And huge curled ivory tusks. They could live until they're about 60 or 70. They are in the same order as modern-day elephants are today. I won't go into how or why they went extinct in detail. It was us. But that's for another episode. Wait, mammoths was humans? And climate change. Okay. I didn't know humans had something to do with that. I knew they um, hunted them, but I didn't realise it was had that much of an impact. Humans... Well, okay, I'm going to go into detail now. <laughs> humans hunted them to such a significant degree that they were pushed back to isolated pockets around... Uh, Europe, specifically in the north of Europe, and they physically couldn't maintain the ecosystem in which they lived in because they were ecosystem engineers. The entire environment changed and they couldn't breed effectively and they also got much smaller. But I will go into those in just a, just a minute. But yeah, that, that's unfortunately how these how these animals went extinct. So the majority of um, mammoths that you'll find today, which aren't in Cheddar Gorge, South Wales or Kent, 
three UK locations where they've been found. It will be the Siberian tundra. And it's also where you probably imagine a, a mammoth to be wandering around the snowy slopes of Absolutely. somewhere far Not away in, in Russia. Not in Somerset. Not... <laughs> now that is a sight. So Siberian tundra, very, very cold places are very, very good at preserving organic material. Organics are preserved to such an extent that in recent history, there have been people called ivory miners, which have actually dug up bits of the Siberian tundra to find piles of ivory tusks that prehistoric people used for building, etc. They had dumped them in the middle of their village, in the middle of the pile. And today people will dig down into the permafrost to find these ancient villages, to find these piles, because the permafrost has, has preserved this organic material so well. And then they'll flog mammoth tusks. So, you know, second-hand mammoth tusks because they've already been hunted. And <laughs> I just, that's, it's, it's quite incredible. But the DNA in this can be recovered and it can be in incredibly good condition. As I'll go into a little bit later, DNA is a very fickle molecule. If you leave it too long, it dissolves. If you put too much heat into it, it'll dissolve. If you drop it, it'll probably dissolve. It, DNA doesn't like to hang around for very long at all. Okay, slight exaggeration at the end that. <laughs> Just a small one. I drop my samples all the time. <laughs> I mean, I've fallen over and I haven't dissolved, so we good. Um, but... To the extent we've extracted some of their DNA, mammoth DNA, we know what colour they were from a gene called the MCO1R gene. They weren't orange or gingery through popular culture as they've been portrayed. And actually what you, you see on, on a frozen mammoth, they, they look like they died yesterday. They are really, really well preserved. But they're not orange or gingery. They are very, very deep chestnut or black in, in their colour Oh, fantastic. Colour Manny the Mammoth from Ice Age was... Deep chestnut. Hey, so they're getting, that's actually true. Yeah. Well, they nailed that one. And there was a mutant type as well, which they've discovered, which is almost platinum blonde. <laughs> so platinum blonde mammoths wandering around. And we know they were well adapted for the Ice Age. We know why they were able to live there. A Canadian scientist has extracted the DNA and found the correct genes, comparing them to an elephant's. And then they, he managed to reconstruct mammoth haemoglobin. Wow, okay. Which I think is incredible. So he looked at the genes necessary, he formed the proteins necessary, and haemoglobin is the molecule which sits in red blood cells, which takes on oxygen to transport around the body. It behaves incredibly differently to elephant haemoglobin, far more so as they are literally sister taxon. They, they are next to each other on the tree of life, the elephant and the mammoth. Normally at low temperatures, haemoglobin isn't amazing, doesn't function great, but the mammoth haemoglobin excels at releasing oxygen at low temperatures. It was, <laughs> it, it's perfect for running around the tundra. Also, there's a gene called TRPV3. It's responsible for temperature sensing. And mammoths had extremely high tolerances to very low temperatures, and it's predicted that they just wouldn't really feel the cold. Hmm, so they had no idea. And they've brought that back, these proteins, in labs, which is amazing, gives us a unique scientific opportunity to, to look at the science behind the adaptations of these incredible animals. And I'm telling you about these genes because we have taken the DNA from a long extinct animal and built them in a lab. We've built these proteins in a lab. We've done that. But what about bringing back an entire mm. animal? That's, it's a different kettle of fish entirely. It sounds like you've got a lot of the advantages that you would get from de-extinction just from creating the proteins of the, the genes that you know already existed. Scientifically, absolutely. However, you, you wouldn't really get that systems biology response um, where you, because everything's different. If you look at a gene on its own, it will probably behave completely differently to what you expected when it's an entire organism. Absolutely. And also... But that's very interesting they've done that. Combining that with behaviour, how did they use it? In what way was it adapted? And yeah, I mean, it's even gone to the extent there's a mummified individual, a baby was found. It looked like it fell down after being attacked by some sort of large cat. Uh, this was a baby that they named Dima, Dima. in 1977. It's a lovely name. Which is quite sweet. Yuka was another female juvenile that they found so well preserved that her hair was still fluffy. If you have two fluffy. pets um, need naming, Dima and Yuka are gorgeous names after two mammoths. They are absolutely fantastic. 
and two baby mammoths. Yeah, so you could fallen in. It looked like she had fallen into a pond, um, and into a freezing pond. Probably died very quickly, and then oh gosh, froze. Um, but with this incredible way of preservation, we know that she had a curly, dark brown coat, <laughs> slightly fluffy, uh, almost like it was just uh, blow dried, and her brain was preserved down to the neuron. What? It was that detailed. They, Russian scientists, took out her brain to have a look at it, and it was preserved to the neuron. The neurons are the cells that are responsible for transmitting signals around your body from the external up to your brain, so you know what's going on. So to be preserved down to the neuron, incredible. So from these discoveries, we know how their physiology in terms of their blood worked we know what their diet is we know the measurements we know even to the extent the behaviors we know what the babies were doing we know long how how long they suckled for so all that remains would be seeing all of these different aspects come together in the organism itself in this majestic animal that might walk again i, I mean an animal that was still kicking four thousand years ago when humans were building pyramids in Egypt so it's 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 really interesting you can do all of these different sections but putting them together would be would be another thing entirely so there are three current ways to build a mammoth how to build a mammoth by Darwin's black book <laughs> the first way to build your mammoth so the first way to make your mammoth take an Asian elephant egg Remove the nucleus from said egg and replace it with the nucleus or the genetic material from a woolly mammoth cell. Okay. Then you put it into an elephant and then you trigger it to stimulate, stimulate it to start dividing. And now you, I mean, I mean, some months later, you'll have a calf developing with a woolly mammoth genome. It'll have a slightly different fetal development because you have put it inside an elephant. Maternal effects, yes. Yep, but you would have a mammoth baby developing. That's kind of a similar process to what they did with Dolly the sheep in the 90s when they cloned an extant animal. Yeah, so it, it's, it's the same. <laughs> Actually, one of the issues, though, how difficult it is with cloning, how difficult it is with just something of the same species. So putting a... A, a species thousands of years old and a modern day species mm. that's just asking for trouble but yeah doesn't matter because we don't actually have enough dna to direct the production of an embryo anyway oh okay so what else could we yeah that doesn't work right number two to how to build your mammoth artificial inseminate an elephant with mammoth sperm we have mammoth sperm yeah yes because we've extracted it from frankly massive um mammoth testes that's not what i okay <laughs> everything's frozen and broken because sperm only survives being frozen for about 15 years and then it just starts desiccating and if even if you rethaw it it's just mm. not viable at all so yeah you inseminate the elephant with mammoth sperm and therefore so that would be uh, elephant egg mammoth sperm yep and okay. therefore you'd kind of get a hybrid that would okay. be born and then you keep doing that over several generations and you'll get slowly get a more mammoth animal, a more mammoth okay. hybrid. It won't be pure, but after several generations, it'll get more, more mammothy, more mammothy. But again, we don't have sperm because it's ruined because it wasn't 15 years ago that mammoths were kicking. It was 4,000. Okay. So that doesn't work either. What else can we do? So, <laughs> so option three for bringing back the mammoths. We know enough about some aspects, well, most aspects of the mammoth genome to take the elephant genome itself, replace sections of the elephant genome with mammoth genome. And this has actually started to be done in a lab. They managed to replace a specific section of the elephant genome with the cold resistant genes of the mammoth. So they actually altered the elephant DNA to have some mammoth DNA in it to make it more 
resistant to the cold, so it can live in tundra regions because elephants and tundra doesn't really work. But that's it again in a lab. They haven't done it full scale in an egg. But they are planning to kind of look at how to how to make smaller external ears, put subcutaneous fat in, change the hemoglobin to make mammoth hemoglobin as opposed to the elephant hemoglobin, then make it grow hair, etc. And you build, using the structure of an elephant genome, you build what you know okay. a mammoth is into that. And that's the most viable option. Okay. So you, you use the structure of an elephant genome and then change it with what you know a mammoth is. So, why would this be a good idea? Why would anyone want to do this? There are a few benefits, and cast your mind back to a mere million years ago, <laughs> where the grassy steppe was the most expansive ecosystem on Earth. It ranged from France to the coasts of China, all across Europe and Asia. It hung around for more than a million years, had ice sheets rolling around, carving out new valleys and <laughs> making dramatic landscapes. But in Siberia, up in the north, the grassy steppe lay open with underground water sources to feed the grass. And it was an incredibly productive environment. You had wild horses, you had ox, you had extinct types of deer, you've got mammoths. Now, grazers are incredibly important in a grassy environment. They maintain the grass. They eat the grass. The grass grows more. They fertilize the grass. There is an underground water source to feed said grass. It's a self-sustaining environment as long as the grass is trampled, eaten, and fertilized. Okay. Because what that does, it keeps the grass in check, and it makes sure that nothing else, like trees or moss, start to appear. The temperatures back then were similar to what they are today. So what we see is the snowy tundra was just snowy grasslands. It was exactly the same. Mammoths agitated the soil. They had a huge amount to do with uprooting mosses and, and things from, from settling. So when they disappeared 10,000 years ago, we see a dramatic change in the environment. Moss took over. Moss settles, waterlogs the soil, the grass goes away, and now you've got a waterlogged, frozen soil that is so much less productive. Mm, I see. Because the mammoths disappeared. They were, yeah, engineers. They were they're maintaining their ecosystem. So when I said earlier about why they went extinct, there just physically weren't enough of them to maintain that environment for themselves. Projects at the moment are involved with bringing back uh, similar species to what existed. So wild horses as well as um oxen as well and so kind of more of a reintroduction than a yeah, de absolutely. just to try and create something which has been affectionately termed pleistocene park to try and create an environment <laughs> to try and create an environment a very ancient very productive environment which was ruined effectively by humans ten thousand years ago this is being run by sergey zimok he's a russian ecologist and director of the northeast science station in chersky Sorry if I mispronounced that. And his idea of Pleistocene Park says, again, could repair this environment. He has a, a big section, 160 kilometers squared of grassy plains with increased grass, gro grass growth. That's incredibly hard to say. So they can't go too far north at the moment because it's frozen. But this grassy plains, yeah, they, they've already introduced the Yucatea horse and they really want to do it with a mammoth. They really want to introduce these huge animals to try and roam around, bring back an ecosystem. I can see the benefits in that, yeah. That's a definitely a good argument. And it goes further. The ecosystem that the mammoths created could store co uh, a carbon content of 2.5%, which is 2.5 times more than all of the jungles today. And that in That's total, it is, and, and it could store 500 gigatons of carbon. So it could be kind of a response to climate change, bringing back the Exactly. Mass. We know that at the moment, the climate is subtly different, but not huge amounts different since the Pleistocene. It hasn't changed dramatically, mm -hmm. which means the mammoths would still 
be fine. It's still within the temperature range. And we would be storing a huge amount of carbon. And also, it would, as the permafrost is melting with climate change, which is a very, very serious issue, huge amounts of carbon and carbon dioxide are about to be released. This will enable the permafrost carbon to be transferred into grassy plains stored carbon. It seems like it's a really great idea. It really does. But there is also a problem. So it's been Tundra for the last five to 10,000 years. Animals have now adapted to a new ecosystem. They've made their homes there. The world has moved on. Animals have moved on. The ecosystem has moved on. Bringing back a mammoth in 160 kilometers squared. How many can you support in that region? How do you know they wouldn't wander off? What specifically did they eat? Would there be enough space for them? Ecologically, there are a few issues. You know, there's nothing to hunt them anymore. And it's seen in Africa. If you have too many elephants in a very specific area of a reserve, they trash the forests. <laughs> they flatten regions because they're meant to be spread out over a huge area. So a very low density. Whereas if you put them into very high densities, they can completely disrupt things. This could also occur with the mammoth situation. Additionally, the behaviours will be that of an elephant, I guess. We don't know how the mammoth behaved. Being a mammal, the parents imprint on their babies. But these mammoths will have an elephant mum. Therefore, they will behave like elephants. So the genetics won't quite be a mammoth. The behaviours won't quite be a mammoth and no one is there to teach them how to be a mammoth because we don't know how mammoths behaved but will it be enough will it be close enough we don't know i can only shrug my <laughs> that's the only thing i can only shrug my shoulders here and yeah the other issue is uh, ethically an elephant is an incredibly intelligent animal extremely intelligent and putting it through the stress of giving birth and perhaps having to nurture something which is an alien species mm, you might not want to it would incredibly large amounts of stress. Imagine a study in which a human would have to give birth to a Neanderthal. Ah, that's an interesting thought experiment because I'm talking about that later. Cool. Go Literally. Get thinking about um, <laughs> bringing back Neanderthals. Yeah, so that's the kind of... It has a lot of, of really just finicky, actually, when you think about it, really quite large issues. Mm that arise but it could potentially have massive benefits as well it's very much high risk high reward it sounds like yeah and yes yeah, exactly that and i think in conclusion to the whole mammoth should we bring them back or not well the scientific implication is very cool i would love to see one it would be the most <laughs> extraordinary thing to see a three and a half four meter tall hairy elephant wandering around some grassy plains but in the words of Dr. Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park, <laughs> scientists. Not Jurassic Park. <laughs> oh, I absolutely am. Scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. And I think the excitement behind this, oh wow, we could probably do this, is overriding. Oh, hang on, should we? Really? Is there a place for them anymore? I think there's a strong case still. True. The ethical implications are massive. If the Best case, everything goes right, we have to mentally and most likely physically hurt a very sentient and very threatened animal of the elephant, which isn't amazing. And we have a high-tech Tundra Be Gone device. <laughs> That's the best case scenario. Worst case scenario, something will go ecologically catastrophically wrong. We have the destruction of a huge amount of Tundra and the permafrost beneath it. When the Tundra goes, the permafrost goes. And if that grassy plains don't move fast enough and take up that carbon fast enough, we have just accelerated vast Ooh. amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Animals will be displaced, not just macrofauna, but insects, arthropods that have now grown to live in the tundra regions. The tundra will go. So you'll be looking at perhaps extinction of arthropods and microfauna, which kind of keep an ecosystem glued together. Also, we're guessing. Finally, we are guessing and filling in the gaps for the most part of, of how they behave and what they'd look like. So in terms of the genetics and what the genetics looks like. So we're not bringing back a mammoth species, we're bringing back our interpretation of a mammoth species. I see, yeah. One existing with our preconception. And if, if you have to start changing things, 
you've got all the evidence that science has given you and you have to start changing things and start guessing and filling in gaps to what you think a mammoth might be because it it needs that where do you stop mm. at the end of the day you've just as like to genetically you've genetically engineered what you think a mammoth is and that's it and it's not that's gonna the, stop there is it it's yeah. not going to stop there and and that's the end of the mammoth saga that's a really strong argument on both sides yeah yeah and that's that's why it's such a contended issue at the moment where no one really knows should they or shouldn't they you make up your minds you make up your minds on that one so my second part the bit that sometimes annoys me but i wish was also a thing that could actually happen bringing back dinosaurs Jurassic Park. I mentioned it to Dr. Ian Malcolm a minute ago, one of the characters from Jurassic Park. And I think that's an excellent segue into why Tom looks into bringing back dinosaurs is impossible and also a bad idea. Are you saying that? <laughs> that is... You love dinosaurs. I know, I know. And it's... You literally have a Lego dinosaur behind you, right? This moment. I do, I do. It's a very... Yeah, it's a good T-Rex. Um, <laughs> the issue is, I would like it to happen, but the science, spoiler alert, is very much swinging one way. But let's go through it. Dinosaurs are not extinct. Birds, all birds, are a member of a clade, a group called theropods. That's the, <laughs> some famous relatives such as T-Rex and Velociraptor. So dinosaurs still exist. A small proportion of them did get through. Question. Are crocodiles dinosaurs? Crocodiles are members of the archosaur group, which is... It includes crocodiles and dinosaurs. Crocodiles are not dinosaurs. But they're related. At the stem level, yes. They're sister, okay. sister <laughs> groups. So, in Jurassic Park, if you're not aware, the company called InGen and Dr. Henry Wu take blood from a mosquito preserved in amber from the... I can't remember which period of the dinosaurs. I think it was the Cretaceous, possibly the Jurassic... This is a fictional, right? A fictional example. This is from Jurassic Park. This okay. is all fictional. <laughs> Just before we go any further, all fictional. Also, I hope this mosquito is a female because the male ones um, eat nectar and fruit juice, which would be a slight anticlimax in terms of... Uh, blood. Blood, yes. So they extracted the blood from this mosquito trapped in amber that had obviously feasted on a, a dinosaur at some point in its life. They break up the blood cells via centrifuge, spinning it extremely fast, and extract the DNA from that. Via polymerase chain reaction, which is a fancy term for copying DNA. Amplifying it, yeah. Amplifying it. You get a strand and you can create many, many, many strands of exactly the same type. Via that, they multiply it. Then they clone those bits of DNA and put it into bacteria. Up to this point, this is all stuff I've done myself in the lab. So all this is pretty, yeah, reasonable. When Jurassic Park came out originally as a book, a lot of paleontologists, a lot of scientists looked immediately to go and rip it to pieces. But Michael Crichton, the author, did an exceptional job at looking at the science. And in terms of the science, it's pretty legit. So you can't really fault him on that. So yeah, they put it into bacteria. These can then be used as self-dividing DNA transporters, basically. Yeah, so... A plasmid is basically a ring of DNA that's separate from the, the normal DNA that you have in your nucleus. Um, and bacteria, I'm sure you know, divide very quickly. So if you stick a fragment of a piece of d uh, DNA that you want to use or look at more and put that into um, a plasmid and then put that plasmid into a bacteria, you can make lots and lots. There you go. Perfect. That's saying it far better than I ever could. <laughs> then you inject this DNA into a frog egg removing I have the not done that before. frog DNA first. Like the whole mammoth situation, you would inject that piece of, of dinosaur DNA into the egg of a frog after removing that the frog genetics. Then you'd kickstart the development, and then the development which then ensues is that of a dinosaur, not of a frog. It won't form into uh, frog spawn, but it will develop as a dinosaur would have done and and a hard shell would then develop i believe in the films they actually put them into ostrich eggs but then you let it develop keep it going happy hatching day occurs 
And in the world of Jurassic Park, they specifically coded them all to be female so they couldn't be reproduced. But you have yourself a dinosaur. The science works. I mean, I have questions, but I can see where they're coming from. <laughs> I mean, the whole purpose. So when you've amplified your DNA through um, polymerase chain reactions, you've got lots of the fragment. The purpose and then putting it in a... So I've only done this with fragments of DNA, so kind of genes I'm interested in. Um, the whole point in putting it into the bacteria to divide a lot is to make sure you do have the same fragment because when you're making lots of things, amplifying lots of bits of DNA through PCR, you can. there are ways you can kind of um, distinguish that you've got the right fragment, but if the fragments are very similar in size or that sort of thing, um, you need to know that you're getting the same one if you're going to do anything with it. So when a bacteria divides, you get a little little colony, a little circle, and you know they're all going to be the same. Um, doing it for an entire dinosaur genome, I mean, maybe that is a way... This is outside my remit, so that's how I see this. <laughs> in theory, in theory, it should technically work. But with a mammoth, I think I've mentioned this a little bit before as so well, with a mammoth, we've extracted the DNA from 10,000 years ago. We've even extracted DNA from a 700,000-year-old horse. But as I said before, DNA is fickle, it's delicate, and every chance it gets it will dissolve unless frozen instantly in ice but it's not something that lasts several thousand years necessarily normally out in the open let alone tens or hundreds of millions of years needless to say we don't have any dna of dinosaurs biological tissues decay we found mosquitoes with blood cells in them but there's nothing to them there's no dna left it's all decayed the only ones that really stick around are chitin, which is kind of beetle carapace, what you'd get on a beetle exoskeleton, melanosomes or melanin, which you'd find in colorations of feathers. You can kind of detect them in the fossilized feathers of other dinosaurs so you can see what colors they were, and lignin, which is in wood. They're the only biological tissues that really hang around. But we have found blood. We do have dinosaur blood. In 1997, Mary Schweitzer in her lab in Montana State University found an exceptionally well-preserved dinosaur bone. They didn't know what the dinosaur was, but it was very well-preserved to the extent that they found tubules and vessels within the structure itself and also little rust flecks throughout. These rust flecks were haemoglobin, were blood cells. That must be an exciting fact. There, from, there's an incredible book called The Dinosaurs Rediscovered, How a Scientific Revolution is Rewriting History by Michael J. Benton. And in that, he really describes this process in, in great detail and also what they did in the lab. And it's, it's quite incredible, the reaction that everyone had. They were shouting and for joy in the middle of a science <laughs> it, must have been, it must have been oh, electric. Wow. It must have been incredible. So they dissolved the <laughs> calcium phosphate of the bone, which makes up the hard bit. And what left was collagen, the second bit of a bone. This is the kind of flexible stuff. I really wish I could have seen that moment. I mean, if something small we managed to get right in the lab happens as um, lots of girly screaming, but I can't imagine what, <laughs> what the energy must have been like then. They found actual dinosaur, well, fossilised dinosaur blood. So yeah, they dissolved the bone down and what they were left with was the cartilaginous material and potential vessels containing blood proteins and after a lot of backwards and forwards it's it was only settled actually a few years ago what it is but it was thought to be an artifact it was then thought to be these vessels were nothing but bacterial films that had basically dissolved the original vessels and taken over and uh, as they were being fossilized in 2015 more dinosaur red blood cells were found in Cretaceous animals. In 2017, some of the proteins from the original one in 1997, turns out they were from ostriches. But that's only because it is a potential contamination, because in the same lab they were dealing with both modern and prehistoric animals and what this contamination could have been. Well, that makes me feel a lot better, <laughs> because that is something that does happen. It does I'm very happen. Early career, though, so that's <laughs> Just put my hand up. It's, it's, it's fine. And it hasn't been recent. It was a while ago. But also from this incident, now prehistoric genetics takes place in one lab and everything else takes place in a different lab. And if you are investigating prehistoric 
genetics that then gets sent to another lab where it's also tested again in exactly the same methodology to make sure that you didn't have any contamination in your lab. And then if necessary, it's also sent to a third lab to do exactly the same experiment to make sure there was no contamination in the second and first labs. That's fantastic. So I don't know if you see that in the labs today, but extremely large amounts of of lab security and biosecurity. I think as well, because the stuff I mainly do, it's stuff that is extant and is in kind of great supply in nature, but stuff like this, like dinosaur blood is in such a limited amount. Your, your raw material is so limited. You don't want to get that wrong. You don't want to waste it. Absolutely. And you don't want something that's going to go on for 25 years. And and But that this is a situation which did go on for 25 years. A lot of people said, no, you've put your finger on it. You're looking at human genetics. Mm, you're putting you're it. Exactly. It. Someone yeah. has coughed over the other side of the room and those particles have travelled and landed <laughs> on your specimen. And that was enough to ruin an entire study. That's very rare. That is very rare. There are a lot of... And you can tell very quickly if that does happen normally. (laughs) These ostrich proteins were found in 2017, but in 2018, a PhD student named Jasmina Weiman at Yale did further tests. These are the most comprehensive tests to date of the original 1997 uh, dinosaur blood samples. More bone dissolving, so much chemical dissection and looking at what was in there, looking at what was the residues left over everything was taken into account in the study and she came to the conclusion that yes mary all of those years ago did in fact find blood vessels Mm. of a tyrannosaurus rex with some blood residue left over confirmed amazing but age pressure and heat had converted the proteins in the blood and those vessels into something else entirely So they were no longer resembling a T-Rex protein, but something else. Proteins rely entirely on their shape for their function, and heat and and other chemicals will change their shape. And that's what had happened. They were no longer viable. We couldn't even begin to guess what original shape they were in either, which is a shame. And also, apparently there was some human contamination in there along the way throughout the years, because it was 25 years old at that point. So So, um, we're not going to be... De-extincting the T-Rex anytime soon. No. De-extincting? Genetic. You know I mean. <laughs> de But it's genetic manipulation from blood is nigh on impossible, which is not unexpected. So to come to a kind of the final bit on, on bringing back dinosaurs, talking about cloning, it's very tricky to clone an animal of the same species let alone two million years apart. Same issue with the mammoth, a few hundred thousand years apart. But this is literally 67 million years. What has been done is something called genetic bracketing, where you look at the animals alive today, which surround the dinosaurs or a group of dinosaurs. So you've got crocodiles, other reptiles, birds, to try and figure out what the differences are, what the similarities are, and because dinosaurs fit snugly in the middle, what the dinosaur gen- genome could have looked like, what its structure was, how it may have functioned. So birds, theropods, sauropodomorphs, which are kind of the sauropods, the long-necked ones, how were found to have small genomes, which I think is incredible. Rebecca O'Connor from the University of Kent in 2018 managed to map the DNA of different chromosomes in modern birds, reptiles, and worked out the structure of dinosaur genetics. And her conclusion was they had 40 chromosome pairs. In turtles, there's normally 33. In humans, there's 23. So by building what the genome looks like and where the genes should be and what the chromosomes should look like, we don't know what's in them, but we kind of know what they look uh, what they look like, we start to understand why there were so many different types of dinosaur. Okay. But for all of the work that it's done and figuring out the genetic architecture, seeing what the chromosomes look like, figuring out what, how many there are, we still don't know what's in them and we still can't clone them. And without DNA, we don't even have a chance to begin that process. Uh, let alone if, if you could bring one back via the Jurassic Park method, gut bacteria, diet, mm. behaviour. I mean, some of them were corprophagous, which means they would eat the poop of their parents to get good gut bacteria, but without previous dinosaur poop, I how see. would you know? Yeah. 
what would the theropods eat? with the meat eaters eat? Because are you going to feed them rabbits? I mean, <laughs> all sorts could go so horrifically wrong in terms of their immune system. We have literally no idea. <laughs> yeah, there'll be new um, new pathogens around, right? Now, compared to what there was exactly, then. they get, get sick very quickly. Get a common cold, and they would die. They they wouldn't be able to build up their immune system from the parents. No chance of creating any sort of ecological background that could have even been very vaguely similar. And again, back to the circling back to the behaviour. I guess the only way we can do it is like with the mammoth, we can genetic backtrack. We can take a chicken <laughs> and we can turn on some genes which have gone to sleep and make them grow teeth. Is that where we're at? Teeth. <laughs> which has been done. That's, that's what that, we did. That we managed to turn on, <laughs> turn on the genetics that allowed that had previously gone to sleep dormant genes from a previous dinosaur past Aww. in these chickens and the embryos started to develop teeth in the actual jaw I don't know about because you. the beak isn't part of the jaw I don't know about you but that's not really what I think of when I think of dinosaur no and also well they also figured out how to make a slightly longer tail okay baby steps I guess if we're going to do this. But that's as far as we that's as far as we got and also they had to terminate the embryo in that one because it was a chicken with teeth and chicken are not meant to have teeth. It would've been ethically dodgy. Yeah, you can't really let that out. Yep. Yeah. So that's as far as we got with recreating the dinosaur in terms of uh, the ancient Cretaceous beasts running around. So overall, the conclusion to the mammoth dinosaur conundrum. You can't only have a few individuals because they'll get lonely. Who gives birth to it and what's mm. the ethics behind that? How many tries is too many tries? How many deaths is too many deaths? Repeating them again and again. Is there a space for them anymore? Because the mammoths, sketchy, if we put them in kind of the tundra regions, dinosaurs absolutely do not have a place on this planet anymore. We don't know how they act. We don't know how they behave. We don't know what they eat in terms of what we can give them today. Scientifically, Maybe keeping those bits in a lab is better and we can get more from that rather than the effort of creating a dinosaur or a mammoth and it, it I mean, entertainment or science, that's where it comes down to in the end. That is going to be the end of our first episode on de-extinction and bringing back extinct animals. In the next episode, Becca will continue this train of thought looking at modern de-extinction as well as some conservation efforts which are currently going in to play today. Thank you very much for listening and catch you in the next episode. <laughs>